Turn out of our New Testament reading, which will be the text for the sermon. 1 John chapter 5, we conclude this morning, 1 John 5, reading of verses 13 to 21. 1 John 5, starting in verse 13. Once again, please give your full attention. This is the word of the Lord. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins, they do not lead to death. There is the sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray one more time for the Lord's blessing on on preaching the word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again before you and give you thanks for gathering us here in your name, the name of Christ. We pray, Lord, that as we are gathered in his name, that we would listen to him, speaking to us through the preaching of the word. We pray that you would protect your servant at this time, guard him from error, enable him to hide behind Christ Jesus and him crucified. And in that end, that through the power of your word, applied by your Holy Spirit, that you would conform us more and more to the image of Christ, to the glory of the triune Lord. We pray and ask all these things in his precious name, and all God's people said. Well, we're concluding this morning. John concludes with these ending encouragements. In verses 13 to 21. I recall years ago, uh, speaking with some friends, uh, to a group of Mormons. And one of the things that they were pointing out, that they were asserting, was that we just can't know for Savior. Just can't know. They'll turn on and I would ask them, and, and, and whoever is other world religions do this too, we can't have certainty. And I would ask them, are you sure? You, we, we can't know. We're saved or not. I said, no, we can't. And of course, I would direct them to 1 John 5, 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Right? And so therein is this distinction between the authorities, right? The authority of God's word, submitting to it, or not, which they are not. Uh, so John closes, as he began, and did throughout this letter, with encouragement and assurance. Right? He wants to give his listeners, uh, he's given them warnings and assurances, remember. He's given tests, ways of discerning and identifying the truth from a lie, light from darkness, the spirit of Christ from the spirit of Antichrist. 
and how indeed to identify the brethren, the people of God, the children of light. He's corrected their, these errors and lies being told, remember, by these false teachers um, that were upsetting the faithful, who were denying the truth of Christ, denying that truth that was handed down and entrusted to the sent ones, right, the apostles, right, they denying these core teachings of the faith, these non-negotiables, these truths that if you deny them, you're, it puts you outside of salvation, according to the apostles, according to God's word, according to the Lord himself. And they sought what? They sought, remember these false teachers, uh, they sought and claimed a special knowledge, right, that they had and could be attained that ordinary, ordinary Christians didn't have. They denied that we were sinners at all. They denied the incarnation of Christ, right? Remember, he only seemed to be a man. He was really more like a ghost. They denied Christ's death, right? It's not efficacious, they would say. It didn't really do anything. And if he's not really a man, how could he die after all? And the implications of all of this, among other things, outwardly, was a lack of love. A lack of love. And John told us that that's the very thing that must characterize uh, the people of God, God's children. Children of light, children of love, is loving one another. This is to mark them, to characterize them. And he's told us what love is, you'll recall. That God is love. And that is defined as in the incarnation of Christ. Right? The incarnation of Christ. These uh, rejectors of truth didn't obey God's commandment, which proved that they didn't love God at all. The faithful had the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. These false teachers had, John has said, the Spirit of Antichrist. <clears throat> and so John wraps up this letter and he, with these ending encouragements, his encouragements to close his letter. Remember, his message for his readers uh, was that they would hear, and in hearing they would believe, and believing they would live, and in living they would know. The world really hates the idea of being certain. Certainty is anathema to the world at large. Relativism rules the day, right? Relativism. Can't know, sadly. It can't stand the exclusive truth claims of Christianity. And it certainly can't stand the idea that one can be assured of salvation, especially in this life. How can you know? That's presumptuous. That's arrogance, uh, the claim comes. But the truth is, certainty and humility are not mutually exclusive. They're not necessarily exclusive to one another. If God's revealed purpose is not only that we should hear, believe, and live, and know, right? If that's his revealed purpose, it's those who doubt and deny his word who are the audacious ones, right? They're the arrogant ones, placing themselves above God and his word and denying it. And so what are these ending encouragements given by John as he closes? Well, after giving his purpose for writing, verse 13, to know that we have eternal life, he goes to tell them that encouragement comes from these number of things, from going to Christ, from being guarded by Christ, and that we're united to Christ. These are the things in which we draw encouragement and assurance from. John tells us what he gives and closes his letter to his recipients and to us. Encouragement comes from going to Christ in prayer, being guarded by Christ, and that we are united to Christ in our salvation. So let's look at these uh, from the scripture, from the text of scripture, uh, in these verses 13 to 21. And we see that John finishes up his letter by reminding them why he wrote in the first place. Again, it wasn't just because he wanted to pick a fight with these false teachers or to merely correct their doc doctrine. 
Um, he did do that. But as we open, his purpose was that, he said, I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the reason he wrote. He's writing to assure them that they are truly saved, that they have eternal life. And so we think about the fallout of these false teachers, these, the, these individuals in the church who have now left the church. They're re- leading people astray, away from the truth, in conflict with the apostles' teaching, with the true doctrine of uh, the faith. And think of what effect this would have had on those who knew these individuals and respected them, who are now leaving. They've fallen away from the truth, right? And so they would think, we knew them. If they could fall away, what about me? This makes sense, right, in this context, why John is so concerned to give them encouragement and assurance, assurance to the faithful. And he does so as he goes throughout the text, right? Verses 14 and 15. How can we be assured that I'm going to be following? And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. Right, verses 14 and 15. So notice, uh, let's consider this for a second. We always have to be on guard against uh, uh, familiarity uh, diminishing glory we find in Scripture, right? The the diminishing glory from our familiarity with certain concepts and texts, right? We are indeed uh, weak and feeble in so many ways. And often we just read past these wonderful truths, these passages like this, because we're so familiar with them, right? How often does that happen? What is John saying here? What is John saying? He took a minute and paused. What is his, what is his, his assertion here? It's that the Almighty Lord God, creator of all things, in whom all things are held together and exist, the one who spoke all things into being out of nothing, the one who orders all things by the word of his power, all of history, all of his creatures and all of their actions, this one, the Lord God Almighty, not only stooped down to speak to his children in his word, listening to them like a father to a son, but he also condescends to hear, to hear us. It's an incredible thing. He condescends to hear us when we seek him in prayer. That's a mind-blowing reality. If we pause just for a moment and stop there. Hebrews says of this God, we have bold access to him. Bold access, right into the throne, right into that most holy place because of Christ, because of Christ's work completed on the cross. And so I pray, think about this, uh, that you never have this attitude, we never um, respond with a ho-hum indifference, right, or a yawning indifference. Right? This is an incredible, glorious, humbling truth, humbling truth but the promise of God's word, the declaration indicative of what is actually true. It's an audacious claim to the world. It is an audacious claim, but it's true. It's true. He hears us, those who are in Christ. And so for you who have given your heart and your life to Jesus, trusting in him for your very life, here in eternity, it's true of you. You have access. He hears. He hears. That's awesome. It's incredible. And so as we read this, what we have here is, is not, you'll notice, like the caricature of the culture of the world, where God is like a, a, a genie in a bottle, right? Just granting wishes, handing out wishes, capriciously, cavalierly. 
What does it say? It says, not that if we ask anything, he'll give that to us. Not what it says. It's the missing part of what he says. It says if we ask anything according to his will. According to his will. And that's truly encouraging. What a disaster our lives would be if God were like a genie, granting wishes just capriciously, whatever we ask. It's truly encouraging that we can go to God in prayer. It's an encouragement from going to God in prayer. And we receive from him according to his will. Right? And when it comes to our prayer, the answers come in three. Right? There are three answers that come. And we should be prepared for each of those answers, these different answers. Right? We need to be ready for the answer of yes, no, and wait. Right? We must move on to maturity in our lives before God. We must be honest, and when we are honest and open before the Lord, right, in our time before Him, in His Word, and in prayer, we realize that it's through prayer that we are conformed to His image. Prayer changes us, it doesn't change God. And many times, it's the case, and if you're younger, ask an older person about this. Often we see, looking back, the blessing of having our prayers answered differently than what we wanted at the time. A different outcome than what we think that we should have and what should be. And we see and we realize that the Lord was protecting, guiding, changing us throughout the events of life in His kind providence. And even in the hard realities of life, when He answers no or wait, we are called to what? To trust Him, to believe, to love Him. Why, Lord, be cried? Why? I know I often cry this way to out to the Lord. And I'm reminded that the Lord also cried out to the Father in the garden. Is there another way, Father? Am I be forsaken by you? And notice Christ adds those words that we must all remember and hold in our prayers as well. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will. But yours be done. But yours be done. And that's it, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Must always be the posture that we have towards the Lord. And he submits Christ, submits to the Father's will. And he answers his son, Drink the full cup of my wrath, my beloved son, down to the dregs, that those who entrust themselves in faith to you might be my very righteousness. And the hand of his wrath falls on him who knew no sin, his beloved son, that the hand of his eternal love would fall on you and on me and all who believe. And ultimately the word comes, even as it did to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. We are changed by prayer. First and foremost, prayer is the vital breath of the Christian soul, it's been said. It's a means of encouragement and assurance before our Heavenly Father. And we are encouraged in our Christian walk and going to God through Christ in prayer. It's the of means of grace in reality, right? Prayer. It's through faith via prayer that the others are effectual. That, and without prayer, they are without effect. Word, sacrament, and prayer. Undergirded by faith, by prayer. And so when we are weak and lacking assurance, we must go to the Lord in prayer. And we go on the basis of what? Of Christ, his accomplished or his mediatorial work in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to be a praying people, 
praying to people for all things. And so John goes on to tell us that there is actually a time when prayer is not to be offered. Verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask him that shall give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All non-doing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. What is John saying by this? What does he mean? Well, he's referring to the unpardonable sin that he mentions in the Gospels, right? And that unpardonable sin is what? It's a disposition that is openly, fully hostile to God, to the things of God. So when a person knows exactly what they're rejecting, exactly who Christ is, but nevertheless, they remain firm in the rejection of that Christ. Right? You remember the Pharisees. The Gospel tells that they knew specifically who he was and who empowered Jesus. Right? It was the, the living God. But who do they attribute that power to? Satan. To Satan. And John says for people who, with such hostility, show this hostility, we should not pray for such a person. But for the brethren, we are commanded to pray. Going to God in prayer is an encouragement for us, for the people of God, that we can know he hears us. And we can know because he tells us in his word that he hears us. It's an incredible thing. It's an amazing thing. An encouraging thing. That he hears us, his children whom he loves. His most treasured possession, he calls us. And so the next, next John encourages his readers by reminding them that they are guarded by Christ. Christ guards and protects them. Verse 18 and 19, you know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Isn't that an encouragement that we need to hear? Again and again, we need to hear often and always and again and again, right? Because our bent is what? Whatever is our natural bent in our flesh is to fall into the lie that we ourselves ensure our salvation, right? Our, our assurance of our standing before God lies in ourself, right? We want to take very, great care not to, not to fall into that. It's so easy. But we're not the guardians of our salvation, are we? There is no self-salvation or self-sustaining that salvation. Scripture knows nothing of this concept. So we must always be reminded and remember and remind ourselves that the Lord doesn't save and then help those who help themselves. Right? It's not, that's not in Scripture. Right? The Lord does not help those who help themselves. And even if we believe that God's the one who saves us, sometimes we think, again, we maintain or sustain our salvation. It's up to us. We keep that salvation by our own efforts. But again, this is so, so very and truly unbiblical. We don't fall from grace because of our disobedience. Many think that this very thing, many functionally live like that out of the fear and dread of losing their salvation because of their inability to meet the standard of God's law. But there is no second part to justification. There's no second part to that. No future justification. It is a one-time declaration. It is an act of God. And then we see the protection line. What is the protection that we see in verse 18? 
It means to guard, to watch over, to maintain, to continue in a state, to keep, right? To protect. God's children don't remain abiding in a state of sin, it says. Sin is not to characterize their lives. Rather, they are guarded and protected. Not of themselves, again. But he who was born of God protects them, guards them, keeps them. And the evil one does not touch him. And Christ protects his people, protects those who have been joined to him, united to him by faith. And we see this in the high priestly prayer. Remember John 17, uh, referred to as the high priestly prayer. John 17, the gospel of John 17, verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus guards his sheep. He protects them. Uh, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus guards his sheep. He guards you if you are his. You are guarded, saved, protected if you are Christ's. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice. Glorious passage, John 10, 27, 29. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hands. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's, the Father's hand. So this glorious double protection, right, this double guarding and assurance of our sovereign God. It's an amazing encouragement. This is an incredible encouragement and comfort for all those who belong to him. You are guarded and will not lose, will not lose you. And then we read in the closing verses as John wraps up his letter. These verses that speak of the comfort from which all blessings flow to those saved by grace. This encouragement that comes from our union from being united to Christ. I imagine most of you are familiar with this idea of being united to Christ, union with Christ. Um, and if not technically, you know, in a high theological way, I'm sure you grasp it intellectually as a follower of Jesus. We see this in verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and then here, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. We are in him. He is the true God in eternal life. Right? And so just briefly, union with Christ is the most glorious aspect of our lives as Christians, united to Christ. It's beyond our comprehension fully. But the believer's union is simply being united to Christ by faith. The New Testament speaks of this union in a number of ways uh, throughout. In John 15, you'll remember the Gospel of John, um, the same author, uh, he speaks of the vine and the branches, right? He says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can't do nothing. In this union, we see, right? This union with Christ, there is this contagious holiness as his holiness overtakes our uncleanness. Right? Remember, all throughout the Old Testament and Scripture, 
uh, it's the unclean that defile others when they're touched. But Christ, His contagion is holiness. He's not made dirty by your sin. You're made holy and you're united to Him by faith. His righteousness is given to you because you are joined and united to Him. Uh, similar to our union with marriage, right? We see this, this analogy. This is, uh, actually, what marriage is, is to be a picture of the bridegroom and the bride uh, joined together of Christ and the church. In Ephesians, we see this, this uh, quite wonderfully. Uh, Ephesians 5, where Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Christ is not an abusive husband. He's not a harsh husband. He doesn't scream at his, 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 uh, his wife. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Verse 26, that he, might, that he might sanctify her and he cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present, to the, church, present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. See that? You see the washing of the word, uh, the holiness that comes from Christ. We are joined to Jesus by faith, you see. What is his is now ours. What belongs to us now belongs to him. We place our faith in Christ, and when we do, we are joined to him, and our sins are put on him, which he died for on the cross. Therefore, there remains no more punishment for those in that state. And so Christ's righteousness is the other way becomes our righteousness. His righteousness is ours. And so when John says in, in our passage this morning, and we are in him who is true, this should give us great encouragement. We are in him who is true. This one and his righteousness has been imputed to us. And the Lord sees us, the Heavenly Father sees us clothed in the rise, robes of his perfect son's righteousness. And this should give us great encouragement. Great encouragement. It's a glorious thing. It's a glorious and wonderful source of comfort and hope and assurance in our lives. Where we seem altogether a lack of assurance and a bent towards an awareness of the filth of our own sin and a failure. But Christ didn't fail. He's not filthy. He's clean. He's pure. Or hear the, God's word from Galatians. We see the same thing in the ramifications of it, right? Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He lives in me. He gave himself for me. I live in him. The Son of God. Christ in you and you in Christ. Meditate on that for the rest of the, of the day, brothers and sisters. To fill up your Lord's day. Meditate on this for the rest of your lives, frankly. And perhaps the most glorious verse uh, that speaks of this, a favorite of many, a favorite of mine, is Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. An amazing thing. Our lives, those who belong to Jesus, who have accepted him in faith as Savior and Lord, are hidden with him in God. Hidden with him, covered by him. 
What a wonderful and encouraging promise, dear Christian. Isn't that glorious, encouraging, it's declaration? We are in Christ by faith, united to Him. To those united to Christ, He gives understanding. He goes on in wisdom and discernment. The Holy Spirit has been given, uh, as we read earlier in this letter, to lead us into all truth. So it follows that by the Spirit's leading, His power and presence, power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and those who belong to Jesus, if they can and will keep themselves from idols. So John thus encourages them in this way, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so let's remember, in regard to this, keeping ourselves from idols, that anything we long for and we love more than Jesus is an idol. Anything that we long for and love competing with our affection for Christ is an idol. Whatever that might be, it must go. We must be aware of it, and it must go. And whatever it is, right, we have to know this, understand too, it's not the thing, right, at root, right? It's not the lust or material things or substance abuse or dazzling technology, whatever it might be. It's not those things or that particular sin that's the problem. What is the problem? The problem is the false worship of our heart. The false worship of our heart. The problem reveals what? It reveals an obedience and allegiance and affinity for Satan rather than for Jesus. It's a heart problem. All addictions are, all idols are merely modern calves, modern golden calves set up to find meaning and power and pleasure apart from God, whom we've been united to, Jesus Christ. So maybe keep ourselves, brothers and sisters, from idols by fleeing to Jesus, by fleeing to Christ for life, for release, for satisfaction, and for love. The Apostle John wrote to give these things, these very things, to give hope and assurance and encouragement that, come, that, that, that they can go to Christ in prayer. They are guarded by Christ's power, His protection, and that they are united to Christ by faith and live in Him. Their salvation, therefore, is what? It is sure, it is safe, it is immutable. You can no longer lose that salvation and that union, then God can change who He is. This salvation. As it's yours, you trust in Christ Jesus for your life. <clears throat> so, brothers and sisters, let us go down from the mountain, meeting with the Lord here, back into the world so full of doubt and hostility, so void of hope and certainty. And let's go knowing afresh and again and anew who our Lord is and who we are in Him. And may we take that love of that Lord with us as we go, showing it promiscuously without restraint in service of that same Savior. May He use us for His purpose in telling the glorious truth of the Gospel, inviting others to come and taste and see in the ministry of the Word and in the love of His people that the Lord is altogether good and beautiful and lovely and alone where comfort is to be found. Let us do so all for His glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your love and your mercy towards us. Overwhelmed by the demerited favor that you show us in giving us grace. We do praise you 
for the way that you work, for your wonder and love and great mercy, and your work in creation, fulfilling perfectly all the promises you've given in redemptive history. We praise you, fulfilling in a way that we could never fathom, bringing glory to yourself in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins in this self-same Jesus Christ our Lord. We praise you for your sovereignty and for that grace. We pray, Father, as a congregation, for those you put into civil authority, the different levels of government, we thank you that nothing can thwart your way, and you indeed will accomplish your purposes, even through them, even in this country, even in this town. We pray, Lord, build them up and strengthen them. May they serve righteously. We pray, Father, grant them repentance. We pray that you will direct them for the benefit of the gospel and the good of your people and for your glory. Father, we pray most earnestly for the children of the church, that you would bless them, that they would love you, Lord, with all of their hearts. As they go through this life, that they would improve on their baptisms, to grow, to cling to you more and more. Pray, Father, for their parents here today. We pray for all those who are not here with us this morning and their children. But for the parents, that they would love their children and rear them according to your word. Father, we pray grant the husbands and wives to love each other with a Christ-like love, sacrificial service to one another. Lord, pray for those who are single this morning. Grant them the comfort of your love and providence in their lives. We pray, Lord, that you would, for your perfect will for them, that if it's your pleasure, bring others into their lives and bless them with companionship and relationships that would bring you glory, whatever your will, Father. Pray help us all to delight in you and revel in your love for us, even for all of us. We pray, Lord, help us to have hearts filled with your love, caring and loving each other in a way that the outside world would see and wonder about your people's, why they are different, their joy and their love and their indeed peculiarity. Use us in our life to witness to your love. Lord, we thank you for your uh, promise to feed us afresh this day by word, by your word that you will feed us in the supper, the bread of heaven, Christ himself. And when we see that this is our life and sustenance and all that we do throughout our lives through all of us, we ask all this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. Amen.